Hello, welcome to A Study in Granada. I'm Jackson Eflin, and I'll be your host for this evening. Bye. Okay. <laughs> and joining me is who I figured would introduce himself. Uh, yes, I'm Mike Knoll. I'm a fan but not expert of the Sherlock Holmes series, and particularly the 1980s Sherlock Holmes television series starring Jeremy Brett and David Burke. <laughs> uh, uh, but unfortunately, uh, Mike died last time we recorded, and so now I have to carry on this whole thing alone. I'm sorry. Yes, hello. I am Stephen, the new co-host. <laughs> I'll you... I love Edward Hardwick. <laughs> oh, wow, you're a different person entirely. Uh, listeners at home can't tell that Mike, like, put a finger to his lip. Uh, you know, to, like, you know, make a fake mustache. It's already having a mustache. And also, this is an audio medium. <laughs> Yellow. Um, yes, Edward Hardwick is now Watson. Yep. Um, David Burke is gone. <sighs> but you know who's not gone? Sherlock Holmes. Dun 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 dun. It's <laughs> very like like a burlesque cover <laughs> of that song. Okay. Very, very side tangent. Um, in Alola, a show I watched a lot growing up, there was a recurring gag that one of the Gestapo's agents' girlfriends would do strip teases to a burlesque version of the German national anthem. And to this day, I am sure that record exists somewhere in like an office or a cupboard somewhere at the BBC, and I want it. I want an, a clean version of that without a laugh track over it, because it sounds really good. You hear that, BBC? Get at us. Uh, we're back with season three as the study continues with The Empty House. Do we want to just jump right in? Yeah. Called by Lestrade, Watson examines Ronald Adair's body. The evening before, the young aristocrat had played cards with Colonel Sebastian Moran and lost a tidy sum. Wait, hang on. Yeah. What? That's not true. What? So immediately this review, which we got from uh, the same site we always do, ArthurConanDoyle.com, uh, is entirely incorrect. Because we'll come back to this, I think, mm. why this is wrong. Right. But truly, the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wiki is the, uh, the Lestrade of um, fan wikis. Sick burn. <laughs> he was at home counting the money he owed him when he was shot dead. Without a clue, Lestrade can say nothing to the coroner except Adair was murdered by person or persons unknown. But when Watson leaves the court, he collides with an old bookseller who behaves aggressively. Back to his surgery, he sees him entering. The old man apologizes to the doctor and proposes him some books to fill his bookcase. Watson glances at the poorly stacked shelves, turns round, but instead of the decrepit and cranky bookseller, sees a tall and handsome gentleman smiling at him. <laughs> it's Holmes! Ah. Holmes! Also, listen, Holmes will look really handsome in that like first shot when he's not dead anymore. Like, Oh, I thought you meant in the disguise. Oh, um, no. Not my type, but... Holmes sort of smiling, looking very convivial with a scarf on his neck. Like, oh, he's, he's lovely looking. Just that stretch. Yeah. Which, if you follow us on Twitter, you'll have seen as the coming soon teaser of Holmes just doing this elaborate Disney villain just stretch. Like, glorious. Yeah, Jeremy Brett's having a lot of fun. He's so glad to be back. Yeah. Well, this first bit is definitely... You can tell we have the 50-minute problem happening here for this episode. There's a very long sequence of... Watson being sassed by the judge or whatever. Normally, when I put clips in, I will truncate silences. 
just so that it does what I'm I'm not going to edit this clip at all. Doctor Watson. You are a police surgeon. Yes. You examined the deceased Ronald Francis Adair, who is the subject of this inquest, and later conducted a post mortem on the corpse. I did, sir. Pray what are your findings? Well, a death occurred as the result of a bullet wound from a .45 revolver. Dr. Watson, I beg you to keep to facts. My business is to establish the facts of this case. I'm sorry, sir. I, I don't understand. You say that the bullet came from a .45 revolver. That is pure speculation on your part. It is not your business to start guessing at the type of weapon used. That is a subject for the police. They do a good job, at least in the beginning here, I think, of doing show-don't-tell, where traditionally we'll get Holmes clients who come in and they explain what's going on and we'll see clips like of their story happening. And this is almost entirely told through seeing everything happen. Like, um, when Lestrade is explaining to Watson the facts of the case, yeah, it's shown all in flashback. And there's a great bit where like the, the butler is forcing the door and inside we see the key fall out of the lock. So we know the key was inside. It was locked from the inside, etc. Like it's not telling us that we're seeing it. And that's a good way to fill the 50 minutes. Yeah. I think as opposed to Watson being embarrassed in a courtroom by a judge for probably five, six straight minutes. Mm -hmm. I would be into it if it was a thing that like Watson has now become, like has been relegated to obscurity with Sherlock Holmes gone. If they went to like, explore that thoroughly i could i could see that but they don't really dig into it enough for it to not feel like superfluous filler mm-hmm. yeah um and there's a few other places where like for example later in the episode they'll there's a thing with a creaky stare and they show that and then later you hear the creaky stare like they do a good job overly setting it up of like this is important pay attention to this but yeah um but no one like says Watson the creaky stare. We do get a disguise. We get a disguise. And it's I wrote a, in my doing? notes, uh, this disguise is a big hat and hunching for most of the time. <laughs> like it, he takes off the hat at one point, and he's wearing this visor and this ludicrous wig and some fake teeth, and he's got a couple like pimples or warts or something. Mm-hmm. On his face, it's not as good as the stable hand from Scandal Bohemia, but what is? It's it's better than the Norwood Builder, where he just like rubbed some dirt on his face and mussed up his hair and went to that vagrant camp. Yep. I don't know. I just a lot of the work, I think, especially for us, the audience, trying to ooh, who is this guy? Was he just like kept his head down with his wide brim hat, and that was pretty much the disguise for mm-hmm. most of the time. It wasn't bad though. Like even with when he pulls the hat off, I can, I can tell it's Jeremy Brett, but I think there's probably a few people who maybe couldn't. Yeah, like knowing that it's a good disguise because the show or like the book has told us it's a good disguise goes a long way for them. Like we're supposed to, as the audience, I think at that point know who it is, so they're not gonna 
go that far. Also, it needed to be a disguise that Jeremy Brett could shed very quickly. Right. Uh, for the reveal. Yeah, it was all right. I, I don't know. I think yeah. the stable hand's still the best disguise we've gotten yeah. so far. Watson faints from the shock, but soon regains consciousness, eager for his friend to reveal how he has escaped death. Holmes tells him that, thanks to a Baritsu hold, he succeeded in throwing Moriarty into the abyss, but found advisable to make people think he was dead too. <laughs> if he did not let Watson into the secret, it's because he thought that, more sensitive than Mycroft, he would not be as good at him as pretending. <laughs> Sorry, you can't, audience, you can't see the face of just disbelief I'm making at this. I would have thought I was as trustworthy as your brother. Of course you are! But you have a kind of... But on the very evening of the reunion, a hard task awaits Holmes and his friend. And Holmes goes into pretty good detail about, like, mm-hmm. how he defeated Moriarty and then climbed up the cliff, and we see a lot of that, like, Fuck off, Kelly from Staples. Um, <laughs> I'm keeping that out of the episode. <laughs> no, what will Kelly say when she hears it? Our avid listener, Kelly. Yeah. Uh, we love you, Kelly. Thanks for your hard work at, like, 8 p.m. Jesus, get out of union. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, and it's a pretty well-shot sequence of Holmes, like, climbing up the cliff and watching as Watson makes deductions badly and, like... Yeah, you mean shouts into a water. <laughs> yes, shouts into a water. We were kind of making jokes a little bit watching this episode. And um, one of them that I made was, he... Holmes! Holmes! And Holmes almost goes like he was like what, and it stops, and I and I just went yeah. Fuck you! You think my methods my methods are shouting into waterfalls? <laughs> you don't get to know I'm alive. <laughs> While we're crashing wise, um, I think that scene is actually really well done. The music is very effective, and Jeremy Brett's a good actor. So like I could I genuinely believe the like heartache he was feeling of not being able to tell the truth. Uh, sorry, he doesn't get heartache because he's a logical machine, Jackson. <laughs> uh, yes, I I also have seen Star Trek and decided that. Uh, Dr. Spock is uh, Sherlock Holmes. I think this scene goes on too long. Like, yes, it I does. Mean, again, to fill 50 minutes. They, right. They found it here and there. I don't know. Like, I just, we see him climb the cliff, and then we see him watch Watson, and then we see him run, and then we see him get shot, and then he runs some more, and then finally Holmes, we come back out and Holmes does some talking so that we can get the plot going again. I agree that it goes on too long. It's, it is good, but we don't need all of it. Yeah. So Holmes explains that he was... Kind of incognito. He did some exploring. What have you done all these long years? <laughs> well, you may have read of the remarkable explorations of a Norwegian called Sigerson, but I'm sure it never occurred to you that you were receiving news of your friend. And this is where we get to the mantle of Sherlock Holmes, which I talked about on Sherlocktober. For two years, I traveled to Tibet and amused myself by visiting Lhasa and spending some time with the headland. Which is one of my favorite Holmes adaptions, where we find out that he's actually like a reincarnated llama and has magic powers and has a wizard duel with Moriarty. Llama in the sense of Dalai Lama. Yes, not uh, like the animal. Yeah. Uh, Which, I mean, at this point, there's probably a, a fan fiction where Holmes is a reincarnated llama. Sherlock's new groove. Well, this podcast is cursed. <laughs> We're kind of brazen through this because most of our thoughts are tailored towards the full picture. So I'll just go ahead and finish the synopsis. I just have one more thought for this bit. There is a line, uh, I can't remember if it's in the story or not, where Holmes says, I'm not a fanciful person, but I give you my word, there were times during that climb 
when I seem to hear Moriarty's voice screaming at me from out of the abyss. Which, you know, fun, kind of creepy, but also I have a headcanon for that. Okay. It's that Moriarty didn't, like, die at, on impact. Like, he, he, like, hit some rocks and, like, it slowed his back enough that he, like, was broken and near paralyzed but wasn't actually dead. So he was, like, screaming and agony and pain huh. as he died slowly. And Holmes, like, assumed he was dead because no one could survive that, but... Hey, yeah. Jackson? Yeah. That's kind of fucked up. I know! I know! That's the interpretation I've got for it. Or, this could be the beginning of the Leo Extraordinary Gentleman universe. <laughs> Moriarty didn't die. <laughs> That's what I choose to believe. I'll take it. Concealed in an empty house, whose windows look onto their Baker Street lodgings, they lie in wait for a visitor, lured by a dummy in Holmes' image set in the detective's living room. Set in the detective's living. That's the end of that sentence. <laughs> Soon, Moran right. Wow, man. Just, this is the worst synopsis we've ever had. Sometimes their sentences are weird and, fr- like, I almost said weird and phrasely. <laughs> Phrased weirdly. Man, maybe I wrote this. Holy shit. Okay, so did Harper write this? Soon, Moran, right-hand man of the late Professor Moriarty, sneaks into the house, adjusts his air gun, and shoots the dummy. Holmes pounces on his fearsome enemy, whom Watson finally succeeds in knocking out before he finishes strangling his friend. Moran murdered Adair because the young gentleman had found out that he cheated at cards, and he planned to inflict the same fate on Holmes to avenge his bosom friend Moriarty. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, he does use that line in the episode. He, he does, but... <laughs> the colonel handed over to Lestrade. Holmes and Mrs. Hudson can celebrate cheerfully their reunion? I guess Watson just goes somewhere else? What is happening? I mean, Mrs. Hudson is pretty pivotal to this episode, and she pivots Holmes once. Hey. hey. Good lord. <laughs> yeah, if t- the TLDR for that is they, they catch Moran. He did both this crime and also the crime of trying to shoot Sherlock when he was up a waterfall. The end. He tried to shoot Sherlock, but he no-shoot Sherlock. This is not a helpful fault. So, let's talk about Edward Hardwick. Okay. The false Watson. The false Watson, yeah. Um, I... mm, He doesn't have the same warmth that David Mm. Burke has. There's a scene where he kind of, like, lectures his maid for not, like... For not having proper decorum with this guest who will turn out to be Sherlock Holmes, and it's... Yes? Gentleman to see you, Doctor. Is it an urgent matter? I don't know, Doctor. Well, did he give you his card? No, Doctor. Ivy, if I've told you once, I've told you a hundred times, my consulting hours are plainly displayed outside. Uh, now, please... Oh, sir! Dr. Watson! Yes, indeed, sir. You may go, Ivy. I am exceedingly busy, sir. There's a good, like, Harry Potter quote where it's like, uh, judge a man by how he treats his inferiors, not his equals, and it's that exact thing. Like, I'm judging him for how shitty he is to this person. I will say that in the stories, Watson, that's not necessarily incorrect. Oh, for sure. How Watson is in the stories. Yeah, but I mean, also, softening him for a more modern audience, I think, is just totally fine. Yeah, and we yeah, had, for sure. And we had that for Burke, so we kind of backslid here. Yeah, and... We talked about this before. There is an apocryphal account that Hardwick kind of demanded more things to say and that he gets some of Holmes's lines. And again, that's that's never been verified as far as I can tell. 
it's maybe lended credence here because at the end of the adventure, Holmes says, like, so what do you think happened? And Watson gives the correct answer, just in full, mm-hmm. everything right. You have not made clear what was Moran's motive in murdering the Honorable Ronald there. There we move into the realms of conjecture. Each may form his own hypothesis upon the present evidence, and yours is as likely to be correct as mine. Watson, have you formed one? I think so. Let me hear. But it's not difficult to explain the facts. There must have been a considerable amount of money involved, and Moran had undoubtedly played foul. I think that Adair had discovered that he was cheating. Splendid. Very likely he spoke to him privately and threatened to expose him, Moran, unless he voluntarily resigned membership of his club and promised not to play again. Watson, this is excellent. Exclusion from his club would mean ruin to Moran, who lived by his ill-gotten card games. Therefore, he murdered Adair. Did it pass? I think, without doubt, that you have hit upon the truth. Anyway, it'll be verified or disproved at the trial. Meanwhile, come what may, Colonel Moran will trouble us no more. We, we came off of Burke, who, in like Redheaded League, and Norwood Builder, a resident patient, who was making the small, like, personal, like, oh, yeah, the reason he knows that you're a writer is because, you know, the buttons and the sleeve on your other one is, like, worn where you've been resting it on the desk. Mm-hmm. It's little things like that, and not just, like, yes, here is the exact reason this murder was committed with motivations and backstory and see i have a thought for that um i think the given the whole thing that may or may not be true with um hardwick getting more lines um we feel shitty about that but if this was still burke we'd probably be super into it because consider that sherlock's been gone for two years five years Three years. Mm, sure. So Holmes has been gone for three years, and we see at the start of this episode that Watson is kind of stepping in to help solve cases, and he is using some kind of Sherlock Holmesy methods, and I would be willing to believe that over those three years, he has gotten up to the point of being, maybe not as good as Sherlock by any means, but like better than he was three years ago. I would accept that as a character arc, especially if they've like done more to like earn that. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily agree that if they had, if it had been Burke, I would be totally behind it. I right. think I would I would be pleased that he got it right, but I would also probably mention that it's wildly out of character. Yes. As we go along with Hardwick, I'm going to be less and less kind of hard on him for that because Jeremy Brett gets progressively more ill mm-hmm. and can't really carry a show. And so I understand needing to shift some of that to Edward Hardwick. And maybe this is, they're, they're starting now so that it's less noticeable. Right. When it gets to the end or it's, we're kind of warmed up. I don't know, but it just, it, it didn't sit right with me that suddenly Watson was just like, yes, I'm the detective now. <laughs> yeah. And that actually should have been where we put some of those like extra minutes of the show was giving us like, Give us reasons why he's the detective. Give us Sherlock, like, reacting to that. Give us Sherlock starting to solve it and then Watson being able to, like, answer him back. That could have been really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... If we're going to take liberties to fill 15 minutes, you could take some more liberties to make it more interesting. I understand. I know that David Burke has said that... He was absolutely devoted to the stories... 
when they went on screen being faithful representations from the book, from the literary side of it. And he would carry that book around with him on the set, and if the director or the writers departed at all from the story, he would want to know why. He was, he was almost puritanical about that. Uh, so he might not have taken kindly to that kind of thing, I don't know. That's fair, that's fair. While we're talking about our Baker Street family, why don't we touch on Mrs. Hudson? Mrs. Hudson had a lot to do with this episode. Yeah, she got to touch a mannequin's butt. Um, well, I, I bring it up because when they show her... So Holmes has this wax mannequin made that looks exactly like him in profile if he's standing with an like iron rod spine just in profile by the window with the shade closed. Unmoving. For an hour. As um, Holmes is wont to do. And so Mrs. Hudson, to make it look like he's a real person, every so often is supposed to turn the mannequin. Except the way she turns it is the most like horror movie, just like <laughs> rotating on the spot. And we see Hudson doing this with like this look of utter glee that she gets yeah. to do this weird and thing. This is one of the scenes where she's gleeful. Her hands just happen to be both on the butt of this mannequin. And it's kind of like a hee <laughs> Uh, and that's the only reason I, I made a joke about the butt. Um, <laughs> but like, she also gets to have a few lines like throughout the episode as they're encountering her. And I, I'm glad. Like, I feel like Mrs. Hudson hasn't been much of a character in the show up until this point, and so I'm glad she gets to be a little more involved this time. She's not really much of a character no. in the stories. More modern adaptations have made her more of a character, and I'm fine with that. Like, yeah. I don't. I, that's one where I'm not going to die on that hill. Like, no, Mrs. Hudson needs to be seen on her. <laughs> but. Um, she, yeah, she comes and goes, but this one she had to do a lot, including the line at the end of the episode that I hate uh, with my whole heart. So weird. It's, and I'll, I'll put the clip in here. Once again, Mr. Sherlock Holmes is free to devote his life to examining those interesting little problems which the complex life of London so plentifully presents. And that's the actual last lines of the story. But hearing a human being say it out loud... Just apropos of nothing. She comes into the room. Like, Holmes and Watson are talking. She comes into the room with champagne and says that, like, everybody was waiting for her to do that line. And it just, it felt so stiff. Mm -hmm. Like, if Watson had said it to Holmes, like, oh, now you can go about solving the mysteries and conundrums and blah, blah, blah. That would make more sense. And it would not have been hard for his line to be almost but not exactly what was in the story mm-hmm. so that a suit would just be like, oh, I see what they did there. That was mm-hmm. really cool. Instead of having to go, huh, unless we want to assume that uh, Mrs. Hudson is actually the narrator of all these stories. That's true. I think there's some really good cinematography in this one. Yeah. The shots are really good. Yeah, especially, like, I mean, Moran is a sniper. <laughs> this is the episode where Jackson and I just don't be friends anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, the the stretch, as we mentioned, there's a lot of good shots, especially from the empty house. I think I noticed was that it looks dark in there, but they're still well lit. There's a lot of good use of these kind of blue lights that imply the nights, but in a kind of in the way you would like tell us it's nighttime in a theater more than in a, like real life, and then a lot of like orange lights from street lamps outside, sure. that, so that everybody was still you could see them, you could tell what's happening, but it still looked like nighttime. And I think it's a really like, hard balance to hit, especially you know on TV in the 80s. So good job, then. We are um, back with the director, 
writer, whatever combination that loves that mirror shot. <laughs> yes, I noticed where that. Where we see a person in the mirror. We saw, I think, Watson in the mirror once, Holmes in the mirror once, Watson upside down in like a magnifying glass or something when they're looking at the air gun at the end. Holmes having a long conversation in front of a mirror. Yeah. And the one that I really liked that I thought was a good touch was when Holmes is shedding his disguise. We see him like half. Like we can see him taking things off, but we don't see him doing it. It's just the body mm-hmm. of a person doing this. And I like that a lot. That was a good use of that. So that we can see him getting ready to, for the surprise, but it's not a, like we see Holmes's face in full profile, whatever. It's kind of a, it's an implied yeah, that. and we're seeing this in the reflection on Dr. Watson's bookcase, mm-hmm. and it's a really yeah, that's a really good shot. You could tell there's someone who really cared was taking the time for that. I think it was somebody who knew that they didn't have much else going, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean this story is this guy gets killed, Holmes shows up and surprises Watson. They sit in the empty house for the rest of the story while Holmes tells Watson all this stuff. They catch. Uh, Moran, they go home. Mm -hmm. It's a really quick mystery. And so I think that they were like, okay, we don't have a lot of meat in this one, so let's really gussy it up. Yeah. The one thing that I know that you think that they didn't do quite so well was the sound mixing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We had a few bits where uh, we would cut from Holmes explaining things to Watson back to the Reichenbach Falls, and it's just like a really hard sound cut instead of like a nice subtle fade. I mean... It's the 80s, it's TV. You can't really make a waterfall quiet, but there's definitely a certain element of like, ah, sound mixing's not a thing yet. Well, I mean, that was obviously canned audio of a waterfall also. I don't think that they were filming right next to a waterfall. (laughs) So there's a line in here that I want to, I just want to call it because it made me laugh. And it's near the end, and it's after they've caught Moran. All right, I know this man. Of course, Mr. Watson, so does the inspector. Colonel Sebastian Moran. Once of Her Majesty's Indian Army, and the best heavy game shot our Eastern Empire has ever produced. I believe I'm correct, Colonel, in saying that your bag of tigers still remains unrivaled. I wonder that my simple stratagem could deceive so old a shikari. How many times have you not tethered a young kid under a tree, laid above it with your rifle, and waited for your bait to bring up your tiger? This Empty house is my tree, and you are my tiger! <coughs> the parallel is exact. And I just love that he made a metaphor and then announced to the whole <laughs> that this was a perfect metaphor, everyone. <laughs> I did it. Private consulting metaphor maker. <laughs> it's an odd scene. I don't fully get what Sherlock is doing there. I think he's just gone a bit batty in his time. I don't know. I think... We can follow this away with the reverie he did on roses in the Naval Treaty. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just something that's a weird choice that was made. Mm-hmm. I understand that the idea is to make is to draw the connection between Colonel Moran and being a tiger to mm-hmm. make him like a more intimidating presence because tigers are scary. I get that. And honestly, I would bet that much like well, in Crooked Man where we talked about the Daniel thing mm-hmm. and how I think Doyle looked at the, the story of Daniel was like, ooh, what if that was a mystery and he came back or whatever at the end. I suspect Doyle had the tiger hunter enemy and thought, ooh, what would be like a parallel 
mm-hmm. I could do it. It wasn't going to let that go without patting himself on the back. Yeah, for sure. In that quote, uh, there is the thing where for the longest time, when they said kid, I definitely thought they meant child and not like goat. Yeah, it's, it's a scary image. I'm not unconvinced that that also didn't happen, but... I am. Sherlock probably and Jeremy Brett certainly would have like made a meal of saying, you tied up a child under a tree. Right. I mean, in the fiction of the world, mm. I'm not unconvinced Ryan didn't also do, but like do both. That's fair. We do have the implication that something went wrong with him in India, but no one's really sure what. Without an open scandal, he still made India too hot to hold him. And I do like that there is some mystery about this guy. I think it makes him more... It makes it more spooky, but I think none of this is working that well because he's already caught. Whereas if we had, there is some mystery that he did something dark and twisted in India, and then he is like a tiger, and we have all this going into the fight, it makes him more of a sinister presence. Like, I'm more afraid of this guy if we have that before we see him defeated by Sherlock jumping sort of at the camera. <laughs> I put the sound clip in of the noise he makes when he leaves because it's so funny and it it looks somewhat like there were he had wires on his back that were like moving him because the way he just leapt was inhuman and not the normal <laughs> Holmes level of inhuman. Yeah, I mean the rest of the fight isn't bad, but this is we're still not to the point where we have like just easy fight scenes on TV. I was going to ask what you thought about the fight scene. Oh, it's, uh, it's decent. It's, it is a step up from the one in um, um, The Solitary Cyclist. Yes. With the truly wonderful punch sound effects. Or uh, the Naval Treaty, the In Shadow Knife fight. <laughs> ah, yes. Um, that scene that was shot just a little bit too much. One thing I want to call out as a monograph since we seem to be winding down is they use the traditional theme song for the show. We talked last time in The Final Problem about how they used that really dissonant and fractured and out-of-tune version because it was The Final Problem. And I like that they went back to the original, but once the episode started, we got kind of a sample of that original. They were lightly playing violin, but there was still a lot of like out-of-tune notes or dissonant mm-hmm. notes going on because Holmes was still dead, yeah. in quotes. It was still kind of like a morning soundtrack, I guess. Yeah. Or, yeah, it sold you on the idea that there was the things were not right. All right, well, then that just leaves us with season three, Must Clash. Yeah. Uh, we have a couple of good contenders. We do. So as we were watching this, there's a, the court scene and people are testifying. And they show Colonel Moran, who has just this gorgeous, thick mustache, very... British mustache. Like John Cleese at his best. Yeah. I literally said, well, I think, and they cut to Sir John Hardy, and I just went, oh, damn, okay, (laughs) because his is much more old Mr. Banks Mm. from Mary Poppins. Yeah. Yeah, it is a very crisp, smooth mustache. Yeah, he looks like some... Oh, he looks like, um... I don't remember the actor's name, but... He was Vincent Van Gogh and Vincent and the Doctor. Oh, yeah, I can see and it. And the Invisible Man of the Extreme Children. Ah, yeah, I didn't recognize him from that. <laughs> you can't see the skinny thing that I just gave Jackson. Nor can you see the Invisible Man. There's one, I think there's one more guy, isn't there? Uh, there's at least one more guy. Yeah, that guy for sure. So there is a third option, and it is the lookout for 
Moriarty's gang mm-hmm. slash Moran, who's stationed at Baker Street in case Holmes ever comes back. He's described as a garotter by trade. I don't know. Uh, it's he got kind of looks like Abe Slaney in a big fake mustache. I can see that. Although, like it, it looks like a mustache from like I don't know Gunsmoke or um, yeah. Deadwood or something. Yeah, which is a good mustache, but I think it's not the same kind of like it's it's not the kind of mustache we bring here. I mean, we had the the King of Bohemia. Yes, as the series one winner, I feel like I'm not opposed to this kind of mustache, but I feel like compared to Moran mm-hmm. and Sir John Hardy, who have these just gorgeous mustaches, it fails in comparison. I gotta go with John Hardy. Oh man, I'm gonna go with Moran. So for Moran, it's because I think it frames his face so well, makes him look so much more angular because of how sharp it is. Yeah, and it makes him more sinister. But I can see John Hardy as well. You know what? I'm okay with Moran. Okay. I. Yeah. It's really six to one. I I think I prefer John Hardy still, but the whole reason the museum owner in the final problem won for the season was because the whole kind of package. Yes. The mustache fit with the whole. And I, I agree with you that this mustache really brings together the whole look. Right. It's part of the look. Like you can't remove that and the, the mustache and it's the same look, or you can't remove the haircut and it's the same look. Like it is a package deal. So I think just on the power of that, the power of personality. Yeah. I'll, I'll agree with you there. Colonel Sebastian Moran mm-hmm. is our first season three mustache champion. Yeah. And this might get cut. I'm not sure if it's going to go anywhere. We kind of talked about this after the episode, but I really want an adaption of the Sherlock Holmes series where Sherlock stays dead for a season or two. Um, Probably like one season would be enough to satisfy me, but basically one where we actually see life on Baker Street, life for these characters without Sherlock. Because, I mean, here he came back after an episode and the BBC Sherlock, he came back after like five seconds. Same thing for Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock. And I really want to like see kind of even just a little like slice of what that's like. I think it's really interesting. Um, kind of let us see why Sherlock Holmes matters in this world. Mm-hmm. But the right kind of thing could do it. All right, all right, all right. All right, we have, we have, we have, we have. Time for plugs. Uh, do you have anything to plug, Jackson? Yeah, I'm half of uh, gratuitous pausing. We are working on our sports bracket right now. We are uh, about halfway through it, and we are going to be talking about some good good sports movies. Them um, them balls. I had the great honor of deciding a tiebreaker. And um, don't at me, internet. <laughs> um, I'm also a co-host of a podcast called The Equalizers, where we take movies that didn't get sequels or prequels, either because they're too good and they don't need one, or they're too bad and they don't deserve one, and we give them to them. We're currently, as we're recording this, on a brief hiatus. You can check out uh, our movie, The Avengers, where I took 27 of our films and forged them into a shared cinematic universe, kicking and screaming against the <laughs> uh, And we had the great pleasure of having Jackson on to voice Santa Claus, uh, the Kurt Russell <laughs> version from the Christmas Chronicles. A movie that I had not seen at the time, so... It wasn't obvious. <laughs> also, I mean, I know this is re- relevant to no one who's listening to it, to us who hasn't listened to the, to the Equalizers, but Kylie Neal is on that, and she is... So good. Yeah, she knocks it out of the park every yeah. time. I yeah, it's truly um, phenomenal. Also, I I've started <laughs> promoting this as we're recording. I haven't released any of them yet, but I have started a Twitter account called TMNT Limericks. I bought at Walmart the entire 1980s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles TV series on DVD recently, <laughs> and I'm recapping all 193 episodes in limerick form. 
as I'm recording this, I haven't released any yet, but I keep talking about it, so I have to do it at some point. Uh, so you can find that at TNMT Limericks on Twitter. I'm so excited for this. For a while, I'm about 10 done, because I'm, I'm building a back catalog. Nice. And it's been a good time. It's been infuriating also, but it's been a good time. So. Oh, I'm so excited about this. I didn't know about this until just now. Yeah, I was kind of keeping it under the hat until I had a few built up, and then... I, at some point, I was like, I need to start telling people about it. Otherwise, I'm just not going to do it. Fair. But yeah, that's where you can find us. Next week, it's Come Sail Away as we're joined by Alex Greyhawk at the Abbey Grange. Do you want to do the outro? Uh, Rare to meet that go. Would you like to do it more as a declarative <laughs> statement? Rare to meet that go.